I don't know what miracle you've cried out for in your life before. Was it for a, a baby to stop crying because you are slow, so sleep-deprived and exhausted? Was it for a job you need? Lockdown to end. Was it for you or your loved one to be healed of cancer or their mental illness? Was it for someone you care about to turn to Jesus and be saved? I've asked God for many miracles. Sometimes I've seen God answer in amazing ways. I've also had people say to me, I'd believe in God if he just showed himself to me. I'd believe in God if he proved himself to me in a miracle. It can be a genuine request and sometimes God answers. He graciously answers. Often though, people say that when they just refuse to respond to Jesus. Underneath intellectual doubt, there's sometimes a heart that does not want to know the answer. Sometimes people ask questions about Christianity and it's just a smokescreen to shut people up or make you look dumb. And there's nothing genuine about the Pharisees' request here. I'm finishing Matthew chapter 12 today before Neil preaches through chapter 13 over the next three weeks and then, Lord willing, we head into the letter of 1 Peter. In Matthew 11 and 12, we've seen that most people reject Jesus and the Pharisees are now plotting to kill him. They want him dead, don't they? Because he said he's Lord of the Sabbath, he healed on the Sabbath and, and they think he's evil. To say that Jesus heals by the power of Satan, though, is blasphemous. Jesus had responded by saying they are evil like bad trees which only produce bad fruit, and their words will result in their condemnation. And now more Jewish teachers and leaders come to him and say, Teacher, we want a sign from you. And this, is, this brings us to our first point. First of three, rely and respond. Their, their request implies that they're relying on a miraculous sign to prove that Jesus really was from God. But... Remember, Jesus had just healed the demon-possessed man in verse 22 and, and made him see and speak. Jesus had just performed a miraculous sign to give clear evidence of his identity as the promised divine king, and they refused to accept that. Jesus also had recently healed the man with the shriveled hand right in front of the Pharisees. He's healed the sick, raised the dead, fed more than 5,000 people at one time. They are such hypocrites. Mark and Luke's Gospels make it clear their request was really to test him. But Jesus is no circus performer, just putting on a show. You see, all his miracles were actually about helping people in need. But the Pharisees have already proved that they won't believe even when witnessing a miracle from God. They say they rely on miracles, but what's going on is a refusal to believe. They don't want the answer. Jesus answers, saying in verse 39, 
that they're part of an evil and adulterous generation. He speaks about them like John the Baptist did way back in chapter 3, that they're anti-God, they've been unfaithful to God, and so no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is a bit of a riddle because Jonah was the sign. As we just heard in the kids' talk, he was in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus is effectively saying, I'll be dead for three days and three nights. Being in the fish was a metaphor for being dead. But, but maybe you, kids, maybe even you are thinking, hang on, Jesus died Friday afternoon. He was raised from the dead on Sunday morning. That's two nights, not three. You see, we think in terms of three 24-hour days. But do you know that for Jews back then, speaking of a day and a night could actually refer to any part of the day. So a part of the day for them counted as the whole day. Part of Friday, part of Sunday still counts for the whole day. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus says he will rise on the third day. And, and we get that. But we just need to understand that Jesus is talking about the same thing here. And he's referring to his coming death and resurrection. And it's huge. His supreme greatest sign, the only sign the Jewish leaders are going to get now, is Jesus' death and resurrection. I mentioned at the start that some people ask God to prove his real, give them a miracle to believe in him. Some people rely on miracles. But Jesus is saying here, his resurrection is coming back from the dead, never to die again. That is the ultimate miracle. God can still work miracles today. But he wants people, he expects people to believe in him, to believe in Jesus based on the truth of his resurrection from the dead on the third day. So I say when you cry out for a miracle to prove God's real, remember the resurrection. Too often we want Christ to dance to our tune. We want him to produce miraculous answers to our prayers like he's some divine slot machine. But Jesus isn't there to give us what we want or where to give him what he asks for. He's the Lord. Better give him our allegiance, our lives, our obedience. If you're looking to miracles, have confidence that Jesus really is Lord, I, I encourage you to turn to the final chapters of this gospel, Matthew's gospel. And see that the eyewitnesses record that they saw him die and rise again to life. So we can believe that too. Pray for eyes to see how miraculous that is. Accept the evidence. Rely on the testimony of the Bible and believe. And when your friend asks for a miracle, ask God for that, yes. You could also ask if they want to read a gospel, a biography of Jesus with you. 
because God speaks through his through his word. Pray that they discover Jesus there. They discover his power and his goodness and why he died and, and rose again. Point them to the once crucified, now risen and living Jesus. We can testify that he lives, can't we? We can say, we can know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But the Jews refused to turn to Jesus and respond by trusting in him. They'd refuse to repent. Remember, to repent is to turn your back on sin and from ruling your own life, and it's about turning to God by trusting in Jesus. Jesus says to his hearers, that the day of, on the day of judgment, the people of Nineveh will condemn this generation. We read about their repentance back in Jonah chapter 3, and, and now something greater than Jonah is here, he says. You remember where we've come? Jesus has already said he's, he's greater than the Sabbath. He brings us to a greater rest than we get on the Sabbath. He's greater, a greater king than King David. He, he brings us to greater closeness with God than the temple. Now he's saying he's a greater prophet than Jonah and greater than coming out of a fish after being in there for three days, Jesus will come out of the grave never to die again. Beat that, says Jesus. But you refuse to repent and believe in me. Verse 42, Jesus is also greater than Solomon. His wisdom is greater than Solomon's. The Queen of Sheba, it's believed, came from Yemen, over 2,000 kilometers away, no plane, no car. She traveled. And Jesus says, she'll condemn you guys because I have greater wisdom than Solomon did. You refuse to listen. Jesus is the one to respond to. He's risen from the dead and he is Lord. Have you responded to him by turning your back on sin and turning to him in faith. Brothers and sisters, I think the challenge of each day is to keep doing that. Every day, turning from our sin, trusting in him. Believe that he is the king and, and the rescuer. And if you don't, you will really suffer. Next point. Just briefly in verse 43 to 45, Jesus speaks here of the danger of not responding to him, the danger of rejecting him and the repentance he calls for. He tells the story of a demon coming out of a person and not finding another place to rest and the return to the person now with seven more evil spirits. Only casting out demons like the Jews did. Jesus mentioned them back in verse 27. Only casting out a demon from someone is not going to save them or fix them. The person's final condition, their situation in the end can be far worse than before. Now, we don't understand Lot's 
about the action of demons and why they choose waterless places? I don't know. The story does is telling us, though, that if a demon is removed from someone, it's like their heart and soul becomes a vacuum. They're left open to attack and possession again. And they can be reinfected with more evil spirits. However, if, if someone has a demon and it's driven out and that person also trusts in Jesus and has the Holy Spirit come to dwell in them, then that's different, isn't it? When we have the Holy Spirit, our house is not vacant, so to speak. When we have the Holy Spirit, you don't need to fear evil spirits or them entering you. The, the Spirit of God is greater. Christians, you don't need to fear. If you repent, then the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. And he's the promise, the guarantee, not of a final worse condition, but a final glorious and greater condition. He's the guarantee and blessing of heaven. But if you refuse to repent, he's just saying you'll end up in real suffering, experiencing worse consequences. And ultimately that will be, ultimately that will be hell. Those who refuse to repent will experience a lake of fire. Revelation 20, that the second death. That there's no more fearful, terrible condition than that. Need to repent. Jesus, though, he's bound Satan. We've heard he's stronger than evil and he can save us, not only from Satan, but even from this judgment that we deserve. To come to him, cling to him. And when we do, we have real reason to rejoice. Our third point, resolve and rejoice. Jesus is still speaking to the crowds. His mother and brother's come up, that they're wanting to speak to him? Are they concerned for him? Or are they ashamed of the dishonour he was bringing on their family before the Jewish leaders? Matthew doesn't say. In this same account, though, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we're told his family thought he was out of his mind, crazy. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says that his brothers did not believe in him. Look at how Jesus responds in 48. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Well, while this tells us that Jesus had blood brothers born to Joseph and Mary after his birth, the point is Jesus is inside the house, verse 31, and his family are outside. It's repeated, verse 46, 47. And being on the outside is a metaphor for being outside of Christ's kingdom. It must have been painful for Jesus to have his, his own brothers outside the kingdom. Maybe you know the pain of having family who don't believe. Jesus proceeds to say to his disciples, his, his followers, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven is my brother and 
sister and mother. Jesus is not downing loyalty to family, but he's, what he's doing is elevating the importance of being in God's family. He's exalting loyalty to God, not neglect of your family. He's saying that his disciples, though, his disciples are his family, those on the inside. So he's exalting his disciples and saying being in God's family matters more. When we resolve to turn from our self-rule, come to Christ, we gain a real relationship with God as Father. Jesus is our brother. And how amazing and blessed we are to be in, to be part of God's family. How amazing and privileged we are to be in Jesus' family. He loves us as his own mother, brother, sister. From Hebrews chapter 2, it affirms Jesus is your brother. He loves you more than any other. We need to think upon that and let it stir our heart and give us joy and peace. It also means that Jesus is closer to us than our earthly family. Maybe you've had to leave your earthly family to follow Jesus. Maybe you've had to leave your family to serve God far away. So others can join his family too. Maybe your earthly family have failed to love you. Or maybe they're no longer with you. We, well, please know that Jesus loves you deeply, personally. He loves you as a brother or sister. Even in lockdown, even in illness, even in grief and weariness and trouble, you are loved by Jesus as family. So rejoice. Isn't that a, a huge reason to rejoice and to be thankful? Take time to reflect on that and reflect on it when you need reasons to rejoice. Jesus said back in chapter 10, verse 37, that if you love your father or mother or son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of me. You must love me more. It's like what he's saying here. The blessing of being God's children, part of Christ's family, loved as family, is for who? He says it's for those who do the will of my father in heaven. He doesn't say more here as to what that means, but, but in the context, let's, let's think about that. What have we been told to do by Jesus over these past four weeks? What has he been teaching in the last two chapters? In 11 verse 20, that we need to repent and turn to him. At verse 28, we need to come to him. He's the one who gives us rest. At 12 verse 8, we should believe he is the Lord. He's the Messiah and the servant of Isaiah. He's powerful. He's not evil, but he is good. We join God's family when we trust in what Jesus has done, 
not what we do. And what Jesus has done is live perfectly in our place, die for us in our place, rise to resurrection life so that we can have resurrection life too. So we do the Father's will. We do what God wants when we respond to Jesus in repentance and faith, accept him as Saviour and Lord, then we also do the Father's will when, as we heard last week, when we, we speak good words from the heart, bear good fruit. We'll hear more about fruit in chapter 13, the parable of the sower. I don't know if you remember, but back too in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus spoke also there of doing the Father's will. And there it's also about bearing good fruit in your life, hearing and acting on what Jesus says. Shall we summarize it as our life of love for God and love for others? So I ask, how is your trust in Jesus being shown in a life of love for God and love for others, words and actions? I'd like to give you three examples of what this looks like. Something that really encourages me is thinking about how Jesus' brothers came to join God's family too. Um, Particularly his brother James. His brothers didn't believe in Jesus during his earthly life. We heard that. Something happened in their hearts. God did a miracle of grace in them. By the time Jesus died and rose again, his brothers were believers. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says, Jesus' mother and brothers were with among the disciples. And maybe because the risen Jesus had even appeared to James. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And James, the brother of Jesus, he went on to lead the Christian church in Jerusalem. He likely wrote the New Testament book of James in the Bible. And you know he was stoned to death as a martyr for Christ in AD 62. So James lived his later years and he died trusting in Jesus as Saviour and Lord. He died for his faith in and his obedience to Christ, to God his Father, loving his Lord even unto death. We don't know when we will die. But will you you love Christ? Whatever suffering comes, unto the end. Second example. The Olympics finished not long ago. For those of you old enough to watch the 2012 Olympics, you may remember a female hurdler called Lolo Jones. In an interview then, she said, as gruelling as Olympic qualifying can be for an athlete, that pales into comparison to a, in comparison to another challenge I face daily. 
The article said that Jones is a 29-year-old virgin who is saving herself for marriage. In Lolo's words, it's just a gift I want to give to my husband. Please understand, though, that this journey has been hard. There's virgins out there, and I want them to know that it's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Harder than training for the Olympics. Harder than graduating from college has been to stay a virgin before marriage. I've been tempted, and I've had plenty of opportunities. She's a devout Christian who's publicly spoken of the central role that her faith plays in her life, and it helps her persevere. I read that in 2020, eight years on, she's, that is still the case. You see, Jones was, is letting God determine her priorities and her sexual expression, even in a culture that makes that hard. Whatever your age, are you doing that? Is God determining your priorities and even your sexual expression? 3rd example. Many of us at Bundy have been doing the Generosity Project in Growth Group this term. In session three, we heard from a man called Raf. Raphael, his wife, and his wife arrived in Sydney from Burundi, Africa, as asylum seekers in 2013. Within two weeks, his wife gave birth, and they left the hospital looking for a taxi that had a baby car seat in the back. They waited for ages. Then Jody, uh, in the bottom photo, she saw them waiting for the taxi. She had an empty car seat in the back and she just stopped. She saw them waiting for a taxi. She stopped and asked if they needed a lift. She dropped them home and the next day Jody left a little note in their letterbox saying that if they needed anything, to please call her. And Raf did. Jody and her family gave them some warm clothes and bedding and things for the baby. It was a cold winter. But it wasn't just Jody and her family who helped them. Her friends did. People from Jody's church just came around and helped in many ways, many ways over a long time helped in ways, everything from making meals, going on a meal train, invitations to dinner and coffee, helping with babysitting, giving them nappies, accommodation, inviting their daughter to come on a play date, financial support for their asylum seeker visa application, and giving them a warm welcome, showing them love as they came to church. It wasn't organised it was a grassroots, organic thing where, where Christian people just saw needs and gave generously. And Raph and his family's lives, they were blessed and changed. And as the pastor from their church said, you, you see people living out their faith in very tangible ways. Care and money flowed because the Spirit of God moved in people's hearts to help and encourage people to be God's people. I thank God for the many ways that various people at Bundy have shown, do show, 
have received similar supports. People whose faith in Jesus is being lived out as you do God's will. So many of you give to the hardship fund, gospel ministry, gospel workers. So many of you are loving and serving and cooking and caring and praying, even in lockdown. See, when we're, when we're part of God's family, when we, we know what he's done for us, it changes us, doesn't it? In what way has Christ, in what way too has Raph's story moved you to be generous? What might that look like for you in the next week? What will you resolve to do? Because you want to do God's will. Respond to Jesus by believing in him because of the miracle of the resurrection and repenting and doing God's will because you're part of his family. Obey your Lord because you know how privileged you are to be loved and saved, secure, secure in and welcomed by Christ because of what he has done. That's why we obey. Let's pray.